We're going to sit for about 20 minutes before we take some questions about taking the practice home.
So Deborah and I are going to take some time to answer some questions for you about taking the practice home. And thankfully, Deborah is going to be giving a full talk this evening on uh, Dharma at home kind of practice. So we may cover some bases now and, and she'll fill more out this evening. So I want to get it started by answering the most uh, frequently asked question is, what do we do now when we get home? Uh, what kind of practice should I do at home? And you might have more specific questions around this, but I just want to answer it generally, and, and Deb may have something to chime in as well. Definitely do some practice every day. If you can find a place to sit and a time to sit, it's really going to be beneficial for you in the long term. Uh, I know, just making an analogy, that if I don't clean off the kitchen counters every day, it really adds up the layer, the layers of gunk on the kitchen counters and everything all over the place. So we find that out when we come here. We haven't practiced and we come here on retreat and we know we haven't done our daily practice and we can really feel it. There are layers and layers of habit patterns that we see in the mind and the heart and it isn't as easy as when we do practice more every day and uh, when we come, uh, when we practice at home every day and then we come to an intensive retreat like this, we find out it's more of a seamless uh, effort that we don't have to really rev the mindfulness engine up a lot. It's already kind of, the motor's already uh, going for us. Find a way that you can do your daily practice so that it is appropriate for your family and for the people you live with, of course. Um, You're not going to be successful taking this, uh, even if you wanted to, taking this schedule home. I've done that before uh, taking the schedule home because I had more time to be at home and my family thought, God, she's gone crazy, you know. (laughs) Um, We don't, we're not, we don't need to be attached to the schedule. We just do it in a way that we feel it's right for our families, uh, for the people we live with. So find a time to sit that is appropriate for everyone. Sometimes we have to make the extra effort to get up early or sit a little later when everybody's in bed sleeping. Or a lot of times, um, truth be told, I would just lay down and put one hand here and one hand on my belly. And this is a kind of a signal to me that I'm meditating. And it keeps me more, a little bit more awake because that's my intention and to meditate while I'm laying down. Usually it's metta in the evening, and in the morning it's usually vipassana. I don't meditate twice a day, but that's how it usually goes. If it's in the morning, it's vipassana. If it's in the evening, it's usually metta. But what our teacher recommends to us is that you do a little metta maybe 10 minutes before you do your vipassana practice, 10 minutes of your half an hour or your 45 minutes, Uh, of your sitting practice or 10 minutes of your hour. Do a little metta practice first. It'll really help to soften your heart, open your heart. That kind of softening and clarity can help in your 
vipassana practice. And of course it gives you that uh, concentration. It helps with the concentration. So practicing every day can help you. And um, take some time to find a community nearby to sit with, to do some practice with. The Buddha said that 100% of the holy life uh, is spiritual friendship. And the local lama, we have a Tibetan lama in our, uh, on Maui, and he's the, the one we go to pay respects to, um, Lama Gyaltsen. And one time I said, well, you're so precious to us. You know, he, he's such a pure being, and uh, we don't have the same practice, but it's helpful to get his blessing when we go there and uh, to, to have somebody to bow down to. It's been really important for us just to forget our own pride, just bow it all out, let it empty out. And so I said, why? Why is that? I mean, he said, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, the local lama is more important than the Buddha. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, because it's, he said, it's somebody alive. It's a human being that's transmitting uh, the, the teachings to you. And so... Um, Of course, you need to pick the right quality of being uh, that you feel that you have that connection with. So uh, connecting with your spiritual friends in a community is so important to keep up our our practice. we, We see the suffering that they're going through. We develop compassion. We see sometimes their strength and it inspires us. When we feel a little low, they give us energy. It, it helps us when we feel them give a supporting hand, um, keep their hearts open to us. So it's really important to find someone, uh, even if it's just another person, to connect with in your community. Some people live way out in the boonies, you know, and they do it by Skype. Or I know people that call each other and say, I'm going to sit now. And they have this agreement. And the, the other one says, yes, I'm going to sit now too. And they sit together, whether you know they could be a thousand miles apart. And then they get on the phone again and talk about their sitting. So you can find ways in this electronic age to, to do that, finding a sangha to sit with. And then, of course, doing your long-term practice uh, it's really helpful It's when you do that, of course, it's really a deep, deep cleaning. And you see the deeper layers that you haven't been able to touch on daily, in daily life practice. The deeper layers of habit patterns that are so painful. So see if, if you can connect with some retreat that I know a lot of you come to this retreat every year or when you can. And... Um, you hear uh, the Dharma from an angle that you're used to hearing and it goes in easily. Um, and even if you don't pick the same teachers to go to, um, Manindra used to always say, you can learn from every side. Um, uh, all of the teachers that Deborah and Steve and I have been involved with do not um, uh, have not tried to nourish from us an attachment to them. Um, you see the, with Upandita, Deborah will tell you, you see the fan go up, you know, and it's like, 
do your own practice. You know, I can't do it for you. Manindra would say also to me, I can only show you the way. The teacher can only show the way. You have to do it for yourself. And so um, this is what we want to cultivate in all of you, to be able to feel the strength in your own heart to do your own practice. You hear the stories from all of us about uh, Manindra and, and Upandita. And, I mean, we only spent a short time with them. We have to kind of dig to find the right stories. To um, It's not like they lived with us. Sure, Manindra was with me for a few months when I was helping him through something difficult, uh, difficult physical illness. But most of the time, in reality, what we did was we went when we could. Um, nowadays, my children are older and I can go almost every year. There was a time when Deb went for a whole year and she was a nun. And and luckily she did it then. She has two beautiful children now that she's um, quite quite a mother, you know, and quite a, a meditator at the same time. Very inspiring. So... Uh, Find a, a way that you can connect with your own hearts in your own with your own strength. <clears throat> you see us with you, and you're only a small part of the people that we deal with on a bigger, bigger level. And so we have our limitations as well. We we can't see everybody, we can't connect with everybody. <clears throat> so uh if, you, if you've been going to like nine-day retreats now, see if you can take a longer time period. Maybe you'll find two retreats back-to-back. There are several retreats here that are back-to-back, or at least one that I know of uh, that Michelle McDonald-Smith teaches and, and her cohorts. And also at Spirit Rock, there's that happening. You can take two weeks if you've only done nine days. Take two weeks. Or if you've done longer than nine days, take longer than that at the Forest Refuge. Take six weeks here. Even at Spirit Rock, they have longer retreats. Some of you may know of other retreats that are longer. It helps to have that continuity. I hear the feedback from a lot of people that when they're in longer retreats, they they really see how they they kind of go, go below the usual radar of the mind and see things and open to things that they've never opened before. Open in different ways also. Not with a big burst of opening that's very painful, but able to do it gradually because somehow you know you have the time and so you can do it gradually and in a way more thoroughly. So taking the practice home, doing longer practice when you can, connecting with the community. These are all important things that you could pay attention to and on your way home. What to say when you go home? You know, people say, what happened? You know, <laughs> I can tell you one word that'll cover it all. P- pretty much you can say everything happened. You know, you s- there was a lot. And it's better to say less than to say more. Because actually, when you really tune into what do people want to hear, they really don't want to hear too much. 
you start seeing their eyes go like this, you know, and like, oh, when is he going to, she going to stop? And uh, <laughs> um, tune into really their intention for how, how much, do, if they're a Dharma friend, they might want to know, and you want, you feel safe in opening your practice to them. But normally, we only share our practice with our, with our teachers and our very, very close friends. Even our, I don't know about Deborah, she'll talk about that, but even my own family doesn't, doesn't know very much about um, what I go through in practice. And we, we kind of connect on a whole different, I, I connect in, to their life as they are, and, and they're pretty happy about that. Um, one time my own daughter accompanied or drove me up to a, a retreat center where I teach and um, she dropped me off there and we went by the hall and she said, Mom, uh, oh, that's a hall. She said, where do you sit? And I said, oh, I sit in front. And she couldn't, she said, you sit in the front? And I said, I'm the teacher. And she said, I never thought of you that way. I just always thought of you as the mom. You know, so it was like a revelation to her. <laughs> and even my own brother, you know, I, he drove me to a retreat once. I said, why don't you try this retreat? And you can come to this one. And maybe even the first few days I was teaching with Joseph and Sharon. Well, who's teaching? Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. So he drove me up and I showed him where to sit in the hall. And so then I walked in and I sat in my seat and my brother's mouth hung open for most of the time like, oh my God, she's, te- she's sitting up there too. I didn't know that, you know. So I, you know, I deal with my family on a family level. I'm not even a Buddhist to my family. We go to church and I make the sign of the cross. You know, I still do it. Like, I need help from all angles. <laughs> so, yeah, and also I, I haven't given up my connection with, with, um, with my love of, uh, of Christianity and how I value that. I never gave that up. I just see how this fits into my own practice. Okay, so now opening the doors for, for your own practice. And Deborah, to answer, did you have anything to add to the usual? Okay. So any more specifics about your practice and taking it home? Yeah, back there. So when you do the 10 minutes of metta, um, do you go through the whole sequence the five beings, or, or is there an abbreviated form to do is, is there an abbreviated form? You want to answer that first, Deb? Um, well, I can just say what I do for myself. I think it's a very personal thing. Um, but since it's such a short amount of time, like while you're here, you've kind of had a chance to explore what's the easiest in for you. So that's usually the route that I take. Is you know, it's, it's, I've just got a little bit of time. I just want to kind of open that heart connection to just touch it, to kind of activate it, flip the switch, you know. So um, very often I'll just do it for myself, just spend that whole time on myself. Um, at times when uh, I'm not feeling so much of a connection to myself, when there's difficult things going on, then I'll pick the next easiest being. I've got kind of my little um, 
my retinue, you know, <laughs> of easy meta beings, you know, those, those beings in the world that just really, it, it comes easily. They open my heart very predictably. They're kind of my, uh, they don't know it, you know, none of them know that they're my, my special meta beings. But so I might pick one of them, you know, or just whatever feels right on a given day. So, um, so I'm just very simple about it and about how I do it. So it's, you know, and, and then, then there have also been times when I've chosen to make the, um, the Brahma-Vihara practice, either the metta or some other part of it, my primary practice in life. And that can be helpful at times, especially when things are difficult or when we feel we're stuck in some way, we're not connecting. So um, that's also fine, you know, if, if we're at a point where we feel like it really would be rich and helpful to concentrate on that, to just make that the daily practice as well for the formal meditation. And you don't have to go, as Deborah said, you don't have to go through all the beings. You can just stay with yourself and stay with who's easy. Um, maybe two or three people, including yourself. Mm. Yeah, I saw you first. Uh-huh. For the um, extended retreat, say, two weeks at the Forest Refuge. Uh-huh. To say two weeks at the forest refuge, recommendations for settling in. Settling in self retreat, being that there's not as much yeah. guidance. Yeah, there's not as much structure at the forest refuge. Um, you you know you should prepare ahead of time to go. Start practicing ahead of time. In uh, whatever you're doing now, just do a little bit more at home before you go to the retreat, so that it's not just like rushing in and stopping on a dime. You know, try, try to add some more in your home life, even if it's um, your general activities of the day, because a lot of your time at the Forest Refuge, um, you, you, have your own, you make your own sitting time. There's certain required times to sit. But I find, I've sat there myself, I find people are uh, a lot in, in movement there. You know, taking walks and uh, not always sitting. Sometimes the major major practice is more like walking rather than sitting. It's possible. So practice your uh, mindfulness of just your bodily posture as you're moving through space every day. That's a way that you can do it without trying to fight for sitting time at home. When you get there. Uh, the thing that I always do in the beginning is make certain times when I'm touching base with my sitting because it's, so, um, it's so easy to just say, oh, I'm here, I'm just going to go for a walk and take it. And before I know it, two weeks have passed by. Uh, so find times when you're going to sit and really do the sitting. I find it helpful to sit in the hall. I'm, I'm a kind of person who likes the support of the people around me. So I do sit in the hall. And so I do that. And then I kind of work up to getting up earlier, just little by little, and staying up later, but not forcing myself. Yeah. Yes? Um, This isn't really a question, but for for me, um, practicing daily life is of very great importance, bringing the Buddhist... Um, the Dharma to my relationships, to everything I do. I mean, the practice of sitting and 
going on retreats and the um, sangha is really important. But but to me, it's it's so profound to be able to bring what we what we learn into life. Otherwise, it doesn't. It's like like when I was a kid going to church on Sunday and you know, and then the rest of the week was you know figuring out what sins you had and we went to confession on Saturday, but it, it didn't have a lot of connection religion, well this isn't a religion or an ideology, which is what, what I love about it, or one of the things I love about it, but just, this, it's such a great relationship paradigm for, you know, I happen to be married, it, it's helped my marriage immensely, I might not even be married if I want to daily life practice. So I, I would hope that people don't skimp on that idea of, you know, bringing all the principles to I me. Mean, it's not easy to do, but it's a path. We, it's common sense. I mean, it's just, we have a path to follow. We have guidelines when we're having a big fight with our husband or our child or right, struggle. It's a wonderful thing to, to be able to bring to those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your comment. Deborah's going to fill that out with the Eightfold Noble Path. Yes. Yeah, I guess my um, my question also had to do with practicing in, in daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like here I really finally kind of understood in a much deeper way what the possibility is. But I'm trying to think, like in my very busy, stressful work, like how to fit that in. Because it does feel like the awareness that we've been developing here almost seems to require slowness and space around things to fill into it. So I don't know what thoughts you have about how to, like, I don't want to be like a story, okay, now I'm practicing and then. Of course, some of it's going to pull you through, but if there is a way more to, to mm-hmm. yep. uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <clears throat> yeah, well, the, there's a reason that we call this practice. <laughs> it's because we're practicing. Um, there's some little factoid that I heard once that if you want to become an expert at something, you have to do it like 10,000 times or something like that. So. So we're ticking off our, <laughs> our moments of mindfulness on the path to becoming experts in it. You know, and that's why we start in this laboratory, in this very controlled environment. We make it easy, because it is so difficult. So we start in, you know, in this, the easiest possible way, very little stimulation, where we can really focus on it. But this isn't the only way to do it. And obviously, you know, we, we don't want to learn just to be able to do it in this setting. You know, as you were saying, we want to be able to, to become more proficient so we can take it out into the world. And um, we can tend to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, you know, to kind of want to rush to the end point of being able to be seamlessly mindful, you know, in every moment of our lives. And, you know, it just doesn't happen like that. So, you know, for me, a, a lot of practicing out in the world where things are so busy and there's so much to do and there's so much coming at us, um, is really a practice of patience. Buddha said that patience is the supreme virtue. You know, with, with patience and time and perseverance, as Steve was talking about the other night, then all things are possible. 
So it's, it's just really to, to, to keep the bar low and to carve out those places in our life where we can be mindful, where we can be aware. So not expecting too much of ourselves when we leave here, um, but just to continue to find those places where we can pay attention. You know, if there are um, places in our day, um, I was saying to somebody in an interview back in the day when I actually used to have a corporate job, <laughs> I, I worked in cubicle land. And, um, was kind of, and uh, there was this one long cubicle hallway, you know, that went back and forth. I think it was like between me and the printer, you know. And so, you know, dozens of times during the day, I was walking back and forth down this long cubicle hallway. And there was nothing in particular I needed to do during that time. You know, it took, I don't know, a minute or maybe even less than a minute to walk it. But so that became my, my walking path, you know, just remembering as I went down there, up and down that, that row, feel my feet. You know, notice my breathing, notice the state of my mind. You know, not in a very detailed, you know, exploration like we do here, but just getting a snapshot of I'm tired today, you know, or just right now I'm tired, or I'm irritated about, you know, whatever it is that's going on. And after a while of doing that practice, like it, it, it almost, it became a habit, really, that I would see kind of that long stretch of cubicles in front of me, <laughs> you know, and the seed had been planted. It was there, so it would come up and, and the awareness would just come. So finding those places in our day where we can, we can bring in the practice just in very modest ways, you know, and the, the um, information age has kind of made this a lot easier. We have all sorts of devices that we can set to remind us, you know, there's all sorts of apps and things we can download that give us little occasional pings, you know, or vibrate us <laughs> to remind us to come back around to reality. So there's, there's a lot of different creative ways that we can just, just find those moments. And those moments all add up. They don't have the same feel, obviously, as being here on retreat, but we want to really value those, to really respect those, because they're also doing the work of the practice in a different way, in a different mode. You know, like Sayada Upandita said, that you know, every one of those moments of awareness is taking us one step closer to enlightenment, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Did you want to yeah. add to that? Or? Okay. Uh, there's one thing, to, and I just wanted to amplify one thing that Deborah said, is that you can always look what's going on in your mind. It doesn't matter where you are, who you're with, what's going on. You don't have to be moving or walking. But as Deb said, she would look at her say, oh, the mind is tired, or there's, there's irritation now. Because the, the more we pay attention to that, then we can, if we see the mind is irritated or confused or then we don't want to say anything during those moments. Maybe we want to just be quiet for a while and gather our senses or wait till we're more equanimous. And those are the kind of uh, practical things that we can do uh, uh, bringing the practice home. A lot of times things just come right out, you know, and we, we don't even know how to hold it back because we're not watching what's going on in our minds, what's going on there. Just to, to follow up on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. <laughs> um, an, an important part of my practice right now is really working with aspiration mm-hmm. um, because things are so busy and it's so easy to forget, to remember, to be aware. Yeah. So um, we have a little morning ritual now that we do in my household, me and my daughter, and sometimes my husband and occasionally my 
baby will join in. But, you know, we have our little um, shrine in our house. And so we wake up in the morning, and once we've kind of gotten ourselves together, we go and we light the candle, and we light the incense, and we ring the bells. You know, the kids love this part of it. <laughs> it helps to get them involved. Yeah. And then we have our little songs that we sing. You know, I used to do this in more kind of a grown-up, adult, formal kind of, kind of way before I had kids. But now we have these really sweet little songs. Um, that come out of the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition that express basically, you know, what we do here every morning. The aspiration to, you know, make it through the day in a skillful way, to be present, not to harm, um, all those mm -hmm. kinds of good things. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like, um, you know, waking up and setting my inner GPS, you know, like, G you know, today I'm headed there, you know, non-harming. <laughs> like, that's where I'm headed today, you know, and I don't have any idea how I'm going to get there. But I find that if I kind of program that in first thing in the morning, then as the day pr proceeds, it's much more likely that it's going to come back to me. You know, mm -hmm. it's much more likely that I'm going to come, kind of come to, you know, as Kamala was saying on that point of, you know, just being about to say that unskillful thing or yeah. do that unskillful thing. And it makes it a little easier to kind of retract the tentacles and, and get, a, get a bigger <laughs> view of what's going on. So yeah. I think just practicing with planting that seed on a regular basis so that we kind of keep keep the big view in front of us of where it is that we really want to be headed. I, I, um, I think I'm going to... What her question is actually was sort of on the formal Vipassana practice, which is the formal sort of noting of the defilements and so forth. Um, I agree with what she's saying that it's sort of really... It seems to require a lot of energy and, and focus that mm. this kind of retreat practice can help with. And I, I didn't realize this until I went on this retreat that really my practice and when I've been able to practice on a daily basis has been more the concentration practice. Mm -hmm. You know, just being able to listen to the breath or connect with sounds. And I have to admit that going to the formal noting and like that seems like, wow, you know, like if I wake up first thing in the morning and my mind is really speedy, doing the noting might be like too, but you know, fuzzy, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes actually my practice, and I don't know if this makes, you know, is actually proper or not, sometimes if I feel my mind is really speedy, I'll just be like, I'll sit and be like, you want to think? Think, mm -hmm. you know, I'll just be like, you know, mm -hmm. let it were, and mm -hmm. usually it stops, and mm -hmm. I can get some space, but the, um, I guess my, my question is that formal seated practice that we've been doing of seeing the defilements and, and the noting and the, the so forth, um, taking that exact practice at home seems a little, at least to me, I think, um, like kind of like, wow, how, do, how, how does that, how, how does that mm. fit into your busy, once your life gets back in the full swing of things? It's not going to go that deep when you go home. That's what uh, Deborah was saying. It's, it's, more, it's more general mindfulness even when you're sitting. So it's helpful not to even expect that you're going to be able to do that. Maybe you can. And sometimes it, conditions come together and we can do that. Uh, so just to be able to get a few moments of you know, clarity in a whole sitting is enough for me. Uh, there's, I wake up and I'm sleepy and there's restlessness. This is a reality check with me. And I'm wanting to get things done. So I just notice all that. Notice the mind buzzing around. Notice the mind that you know falls asleep. But I don't push myself so much. 
if I can just get in my position and I can do what I can during that time, it's fine with me. There's no big push. I don't expect to go really deep in that to in that practice. It's more like cleaning off the kitchen counters. It's not like spring cleaning. So <laughs> not to expect that. And I also might add, if your mind is really all over the place, you can do concentration practice. Just stay with the breath for a while. Um, nothing wrong with that. We, there are concentration retreats where you learn just that. And this was a Vipassana retreat. So we were teaching how to be with changing objects. Yeah. Yeah. Dan? So you guys mentioned um, just the importance of your teachers and working with your teachers. How do you, how do you go about like, finding a teacher and, you know, and sort of developing a relationship with them and, and mm-hmm. working with them? And what are the qualities of a teacher? Well, how do you find a teacher? Usually it's by being in a retreat or listening to their talks and then being drawn into connecting with them because you've listened to their talks on Dharma Seed Tape Library or wherever else you may hear them. Uh, and if you feel like you can resonate with how they're sharing the Dharma and it comes in easily for you, Usually that's what draws us to a particular teacher. And as I said uh, before, you can have the Dharma be your teacher. You can learn from every side. So even though um, we've had major teachers that we've mentioned, there have been other retreats that all of us have attended and we've found benefit from learning from many different sides. Usually... um, there's, there are m- many teachers that come here all the time or that, that are in this retreat center, say on the West Coast, regularly are there. There are some teachers like Steve and I who are more itinerant teachers. You know, we, we teach all over the place. Those people that uh, are students to our itinerant teachers just go to their retreats. And the reality is that... Um, as far as uh, Steve and I and Deborah, we see them about once a year. And then we, you know, we catch up a little bit with what's going on in their life. But usually, I, I think Steve didn't say it at the beginning, uh, but usually, not usually, but always, we, we have to say that we're not counselors or psychologists. We're not here to help you with, you know, how are you going to solve your marriage problems and things like that. that? That's for somebody else to do. But we want to use our time wisely with you to really pay attention to your practice, to what's happening deep down in your mind, body, mind and heart. And so uh, you should use your teachers in that way. Yeah. Uh, then not expect that, you know, with a lot of teachers not to expect that you're going to have them uh, be available to you all the time. Some teachers do just have to see what you need and some teachers can't and they just uh, just know what they offer and whether that's something that would work for you. And um, we, we would see our teachers not very often but that would be... Uh, you know, a time when you really pay attention to what's happening and you give them time to 
give you advice um, because all the time can't be with them listening, you know. So you have to be willing to to say in the shortest possible way what you need to say and then listen to what's going on, uh, what they have to offer you. So you kind of have to be ready to really have a teacher that can tell you directly what's going on, too. Sometimes people aren't. Uh, they, They need more counseling, and so you have to know where you're at with that. Yeah. Nancy, did you have something? wondering if you could suggest ways to be mindful with difficult people at home. Uh-huh. <laughs> we were just having a little conversation about that. Deb, do you have... I remember you said something about the kids. <laughs> Not, her kids are just angels. But <laughs> And what... Uh, what you said, Deb, if you don't mind me saying so, is that you said you, when you had your children, you realized that people come into life <laughs> with them as beautiful as and angelic as they are. Uh, you've probably seen them around. They're they're really so pure. But Deb had another comment about them that, and that if we realize that about how how it is when we come into life, even in this life, in, in our birth, that we come in to life with, um, you know, greed, with wanting, and we come into life with ill will, and, um, that, and that continues to play out and to be nourished by delusion because we don't see it. We can have much more understanding about those we live with. And so that's what I learned from Deborah this afternoon. <laughs> yes, now, now I remember. <laughs> yeah. I, what I learned from her was maybe I could see the people in my life that way as little children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Go I, ahead. I found it helpful for myself along those lines to reflect when somebody's really um, just causing trouble, when somebody's really difficult to deal with, to remember that there's no unskillful behavior that comes from a place of happiness that all harm in this world comes from a place of suffering. It's not possible to, to engage in unskillful behavior. If we, you know, there's times when we're happy, when we're content, when we're peaceful. That's not when we're, you know, irritable and, you know, aggressive and all that kind of thing. The, that harmful behavior really comes from a place of hurting. So to the extent that we can see that in ourselves, you know, first and foremost, this has been my, my biggest teacher in dealing with difficult people is to see you know, that I'm the difficult person, you know, to see in my own heart how when um, the defilements are there, the, the stuff that comes out and the things that I'm capable of. So that really gives us a deeper understanding when we see the manifestation around us of what's the truth behind it, you know, what's the inner experience of that. And then we have that common ground of connection of, you know, oh, this is really coming from, you know, a place of hurting, you know. Can, can we listen to the what's behind the, the behavior, the speech that's coming at us rather than the content of it. You know, the mm-hmm. expression of it is really just, you know, much like our own thoughts. The ex- it's not the content that matters, but what's really the message that's coming through that, the message of, of hurting, the message of disconnection. So, so to, again, you know, that's one way in which this practice that we're doing here is really, it's not just about us. The more we know about what goes wrong in here, you know, then the more we can understand and respond with compassion to everything else that's going wrong out there and others and around us. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. So the question's about programming our children. <laughs> How do we avoid it? Green in the apple and the beauty of the light. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Kamala, I'm sure, has things to say about this too, but because we have different perspectives. You know, I'm kind of at the beginning looking out. My children are still very young, and Kamala's kind of in the process, but more seeing it from the, the other end. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to be programmed, kind of as you're saying. You know, we are going to pick up concepts. We, we can't skip the conceptual level of reality. That's part of our existence as human beings. So another thing that we get to see here, really, is the importance of having a wholesome uh, relative reality, that we get a good story growing up. I mean, that seeing just how, how painful and how damaging the, the unwholesome, unskillful stories that get heaped on us can be, really can be a source of great motivation, great inspiration um, to, to give our children, and, and for that matter, anybody else who's around us that's really absorbing messages from us, to give them a beautiful message, to give them a wholesome message, to give them a, a good story, a happy story to carry with them in life. In life. Um, there's a, a saying that we often repeat here that uh, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we have, we have to deal with the relative, the emotional, the psychological side of things, too. You know, if we haven't got health on that level, then we're going to be limited in how, how deep we can go on the absolute level as well. So many of us need to, you know, as adults, approach, approach well-being from both sides, from both the relative side and the absolute side. Um, so that's our, our motivation for um, being, being able to give our children as... as uh, a clearer field as possible to, to realize their potential, whatever they might decide that is eventually, ultimately. And for myself at this point, um, really the best way that I've found to do that is, is again by modeling, you know, that, mm-hmm. that they are really learning how to, to be in the world themselves by how I am. You know, so again, we come back to, you know, we're not just doing this for ourselves, that getting our own ducks in a row um, you know, especially when we have young children or other people that are dependent on us, it's so important because they absorb that energy. You know, they learn much more from how I am with them uh, than to the stories that I tell them. You know, they're still at the age when they don't believe anything I tell them anyway. You know, or it's it's just not meaningful to them yet. You know, they haven't reified their relative reality that much. So, um, and and Kamala was relating these stories about the things that her children have absorbed from her over the years. That that what we don't say to them. You know, is, is very often much more important than what we do say to them. 
So that's just a little bit around that. Do you have your perspective, Doc? I think you said it all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to add to sort of, it's just a comment, really. For me, I, this is my first retreat. I've never really done Buddhist meditation before. But some of the things like um, Kamala was talking about, Manindra, um, you know, putting food out for ants and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. certain things. Speaking of programming, it's just interesting coming from, I was, I was born American and then I lived in India for a little bit and then I came back again. And it was just simply part of my upbringing. Like my programming was that you take uh, flour and sugar and you take it out for ant hill and you feed the ants as a daily practice. Or you put food out for all the animals that walk by, you know, your family house. I mean, in fact, in every neighborhood, there's a little area to put food out for animals um, that are stray in the streets. Or every meal that you sit down and eat, you say, I hope everybody in the world also has food. So, like, metta comes so easily for me because it's been part of my upbringing in a way that I never looked at it as meditation or anything outside of just what you do as a person on a daily basis. So it's still relative stuff, but I don't know if that's helpful um, because we teach that to my niece and my nephew every single day. And you just see kind of that softness and that compassion in them. And sometimes they struggle with it because other kids that they interact with don't exactly have that. <laughs> and that's a whole different issue. But, but I feel like sometimes it just becomes reality and you don't even realize that it was the way you were brought up. And, it wasn't, you know what I mean? So it's what you're saying is that the modeling really helps you. Yeah, yeah, it really does. yeah. So we can model what there's an old story about when somebody went home from a retreat and said, oh, my parents, my family hated me when I was a Buddhist, but they loved me when I was a Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just exemplifying the Dharma in your own life. Yeah. There's also a family retreat that's run here every summer, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful uh, opportunity to share the you know the vibe here and the teachings in a very gentle way with children. And if you look on the the IMS website, there's just, just in general there's a wonderful reading list and resource list um, for all sorts of different topics: parenting, things for children, things for teens, yeah. um, things for studying the suttas, whatever you might be interested in. So, you can take advantage of that. Back there. Mm-hmm. Is there a good source for that? A nice, clear, understandable source that Americans could relate to? Mm-hmm. A good translation? You know, Bhikkhu Bodhi put a, a, a compilation of wonderful suttas out, and I think it's called In the Words of the Buddha or In the Buddha's Words by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And that's. Uh, he does it systematically, starting from home life and going uh, up to Nibbana, you know, at the end of the, the suttas that deal with um, the unconditioned. That's a good one. I think we're going to put a, um, a book list up, too. I saw it on Steve's list to put the book list up. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this is another relative reality, absolute reality, but in terms of relationships... Uh-huh. Um, and, or mar- marriage, 
or those kind of relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I struggle a little bit with understanding, uh, holding a commitment and and uh, impermanence and um, the the flowing of intention, changing of intention uh, at the same time. I wonder if you could comment on the changing of intention. Can you fill that? that out a little bit in terms of uh, marriage or a partnership? Well, I guess that's what, I guess that's kind of what I'm asking. I mean, I, I it seems like if I'm, uh, well, I'm in a, you know, kind of on again, off again relationship that's trying to find its way. Mm -hmm. And um, so I guess the question, you know, so I'm struggling with what is the commitment and mm. how can I be sure I'll hold it? Mm -hmm. Things change, mm -hmm. and I'm not. In, my children are grown also. So yeah, it's a different children sort of bridge in a way. Yeah, yeah. The commitment uh, and Deborah may have a um, a different but also important angle on it. The commitment is like you have to make it every day. <laughs> you know, whatever your commitment is, it isn't like one commitment that lasts for 40 years or something. Um, it's something that you do every day to, mostly it's to make a commitment to stay connected, to keep our hearts open, to see when the other person is suffering and to give compassion, to see when they're having joy and offer um, mudita or sympathetic joy, to stay open to goodwill and when, when both joy and sorrow in your life can the mind be so spacious and the heart be so spacious with balance that there can be equanimity. So something so uh, foundational as the four Brahma-viharas can, you can put your commitment on in terms of your connection with the, that that's how you aim to, that's how you aspire to relate in your relationship. And as far as permanence or impermanence, all relationships are impermanent. So they're either, they either um, break apart by death or by, you know, divorce or separation or... So yeah, we go a, into it. I trouble trying to make a promise about the separate... The, the, separation or divorce but you know uh-huh like what what promise I think you've answered it yeah but it's it seems like you can't really promise how you're going to feel in the future yeah uh, you, you, know, you can't right. that's true yeah mm -hmm. so you know Steve and I were together for 14 years before we got married <laughs> and so when we did our commitment uh, ritual to each other it was something that had these words, I will do the best I can. It wasn't like, it's this and that's it forever. And because we know things are always changing. So we have to have the words reflect that. Have the words reflect your honest intention. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's funny. We, my husband and I went through very similar uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> when we were trying to put together our, our wedding ceremony and what we were actually going to say. I kept, you know, we were both kind of collecting things and bringing them in. I kept bringing all these Buddhist quotes like, you know, it's not forever, but, you know, <laughs> I'll do the best I can for now and my commitment is... <laughs> 
<laughs> and my husband would be like, gee, you must really love me. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a leap of faith like anything yeah. else. You yeah. know, anything that we make a commitment to is a leap of faith because we have no way of knowing yeah, how it's going to turn out. So, you know, I, I came to a place of thinking about, you know, what do I honestly believe is going to be most supportive of my unfolding at this point in my life, you know, to the extent that I can have any sense of what direction I might be heading, you know. So again, checking in with that inner GPS, you know, do I think that this is really going to be for the best in my life and his life and, you know, everybody's life and the way I am in the world in general. So and that's the best we can do yeah. in the moment with anything, whether it's marriage or, or anything else that we undertake, coming on a retreat, you know, it's a leap of faith. One thing that will help you through uh, your practice of going home is really try to practice and understand and listen to more Dharma talks and go to um, retreats where they can teach metta, can teach compassion. There's beautiful practices of joy with James Baraz uh, online now that um, is easy to join up. Really uh, fill that out in your own lives something to fall back on in daily practice a lot. Yeah? Yeah, kind of on that note, um, I was just curious what your experience of um, generosity was. Mm -hmm. It's like a a, a real practice in in life, because that's the first thing, right, that the Buddha would go to. Yeah, yeah. I know it's been really helpful, I'm just curious what what my practice of generosity yeah, is no, my oh right it's really helped me to let go a lot because a lot of the things we uh, a lot of the places we see where we hang on is when um, in material resources where I see that oh you know I'm pretty uh, clingy about this I have a lot of stories to tell about that <laughs> uh, one time I gave um, there was this cook and she wasn't getting in. It was back in the day when, when um, there was no Donna for the cooks, you know, and the cooks weren't paid anything. And so I wanted to give my very best and to, to her. So I picked out a dress that it took me a lot of savings to buy, and I gave the dress to her, but I really wanted it back. And so. <laughs> I, I regretted, I you know, thought about the dress, and e- even when I gave it, it was hard to like let it go, you know. And then even after I gave it, it was like um, I had many thoughts about it, honest. And, and I just wanted, thought, why did I give that dress? I should, even though I would see her in the dress and I'd be happy that she was wearing the dress. Well, Lo and behold, on my 60th birthday, I didn't, she gave me the dress back. <laughs> it was about 35 years. You know, she, she kept that dress. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> she must have heard my Dharma talk somewhere, you know, and she knew that was the dress, that was hers. But what happens... That, <laughs> The teaching out of that is what happens when we give is we, we see where we're holding back. And it's not just the generosity we see, but we see the places where we're, we're stuck and we're, we're clinging. 
And not only that, it's to places where, you know, energetically or time-wise, or we don't feel like giving our hearts to someone else. Um, uh, we see all that much more clearly in the process of generosity. So I would, I, I took that as a mindfulness practice. I used it as a mind, and I still do. But in my life now, um, that, that parami and that uh, first pillar of the Dharma is really important to both Steve and I. So uh, because we really understand that that practice leads to the highest and wasn't able to fill all of that out in the Dharma talk last night, but it really leads to the highest, to the total letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so we really... Um, we really look at where we can give in our lives, you know, what, what's important for us on the cultural level, and also giving scholarships and giving to, like in Burma, to some students and building schools and things like that, to our teachers and uh, all the dana that we have from teaching. It goes to all of that, and you'll, I'm sure Steve will. Uh, lay that out to you later too. But um, so, when you give to to us, it it goes much further than that. It you you can know in your hearts that it goes to teachers, to students, to school building in foreign countries. It it goes to the symphony and at you know the small symphony orchestra in Maui. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it goes to saving the beaches in in Hawaii, and so. We really, we really look at where are the places that it makes us happy to give, um, and at all levels, you know, and also to the food bank, and it's a, it's a major, major practice for for us. Steve has a special practice of giving to those uh, that he meets on the on the streets of New York, and those, you know, asking for a. a just some money for a pizza. And then, you know, he could tell you some funny stories and somebody saying, can I have some for my wife too? You know, and so, yeah, all right. And one time we walked out of a place um, and, and somebody was there and he gave to that person and was in a wheelchair and he gave a little bit more. And so then as soon as Steve gave, the guard came out and said, it's time for you to leave now. And he picked up his wheelchair and he walked off. <laughs> But Steve was still really happy that he gave to him. And it was not like, oh, he conned me. It was like, wow, this is great. You know, I, he, it, to be able to still have that happiness in his heart, to, I mean, that you have to practice giving to be able to still have that in your heart, you know, when you see that. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so giving... Um, really paying attention to that in your life. And it's not an amount. It's just like, how much can you open your heart? Yeah. One last one, right back there. Yeah. Um, so uh, one question I have is that um, sometimes the practice at home can get very diffused because there's so much coming at, at us. You know, we want to practice with uh, working with this difficult person, and then I want to practice with this aspiration to uh, be more aware of thought and be understand uh, the cause of the hindrances. And so I, I find that 
moving from one aspiration, if you will, mm. to another. And so it gets it gets kind of diluted. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, there's a lot of inspiration, but I, I don't have much follow-up. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could comment. Yeah. Deborah, you want to go first? Mm. Well, it's, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of what I've, we've been saying. Uh, in my own practice, I found it really important not to bite off more than I can chew. <laughs> yeah. You know, so at different times in my life, there have been different emphases. And it is important, you know, to reflect on where are we in our path and kind of what's, what's most compelling, you know, what's most important for us at a particular point in our lives and not to try to do everything at once. Um, in a way, it comes back to, to the faith that there'll be time for everything that we need to hit as we go along. And really, um, it's, all kind of, it's all interwoven anyway. You know? So we might decide, well, there's one particular area of practice that we want to focus on. But really, it affects everything else. You know? There's no way to yes. limit this practice. You know, you, you know, just coming here and doing a silent meditation retreat, you know, as we've been talking about, it's not just about sitting here and staring at our own navels. You know, there's no way it can't reverberate and have ripples into every other aspect of our lives, the lives of those around us. Um, so cultivating that, that patience to be willing to, to give things time to unfold and to, and to reflect and to have some focus about where we want to be putting our energy at any given time. So, because it can get very like, oh, well, I want to study Pali, you know, and I want to sit for an hour every day, you know, and I want to, you know, work, really work on my relationship with these five difficult people that I have, you know, and it's, it's just all too much. So, you know, what's kind of the, the big thing that's up for us, where we feel inspired, where we feel really moved to put our energy? Yeah, going where it feels um, most compelling for you. That's how I would choose it, too. And then when you go into that, I noticed that you said it's hard to stay with it or something like that. Uh, Make the aspiration, uh, like what Deb was saying, how they make aspirations every day in the family. Even before I sit down, if I know that I'm having difficulty with uh, opening to a certain place in my heart or um, difficulty with staying with something that I've opened to already, I'll make the aspiration just a short uh, and let go of uh, attachment to result. I, I'd say something to myself, may I open to this with clarity and ease? Or in that case I might say, may, may my heart always recognize this aspiration or recognize this aspiration many times during the day and then just leave it you know you don't so you remember that you you sit down and you start out in the day and you remember that there are several times that i might say like in a week i might say wake up and say i know i have to pay attention to this today and i'll still be in bed and i'll say yesterday wasn't such a good day you know, and today I really need to pay attention to giving myself um, some care. And I'll just say that in the morning, and I'll notice at night, I'll look back and I'll notice, I did some of that today. I fulfilled that aspiration today. So actually saying it to yourself can help, just something very practical. Nothing wrong with doing that when you sit, too just letting go of the attachment to result. Just. That's really big. (laughs) 
So if there's any last burning question, then we're going to take a break. Okay. So let's take a break now, and will somebody ring the bell at time to come in here by 4 o'clock? Say ring it at 5 to 4, so it gives everybody time to go to the bathroom and have some water, etc. Okay, thank you. <laughs>